Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're looking at how small things illuminate the world with Simon Garfield and his latest book, In Miniature. Simon Garfield is the author of a number of acclaimed books of non-fiction, including A Notable Woman as editor, To the Letter, On the Map, Just My Type, Timekeepers and Mauve. His study of AIDS in Britain, The End of Innocence, won the Somerset Mom Prize. And Simon's latest book, In Miniature, How Small Things Illuminate the World, is what we're going to be talking about today. Simon, welcome to Little Atoms. Very happy to be here, Neil. So I want to talk about why miniatures? Where did the idea for this book come from? God, I mean, slightly convoluted, but you will appreciate the, the wonders of the book that might have been. Um, I had an idea that I think my agent and my editor thought maybe a little bit too obscure, even for me. And if anyone's listening, and wants to take this on, be my guest, because I'm not going to do it. The idea was, originally, I was going to have... It was going to be a book called Four Men Build a Railway, and it was going to be about four middle-aged men, my age, putting together a model railway in an attic somewhere. So the idea being that, you know, you have kids and uh, you buy them a train set that you always wanted as a kid, but you never had. And you would actually now have this dream of you'd be much more mature, much more able to afford all the kit that you wanted. And you would get a Hornby set or whatever it was and then build a wonderful landscape around it and learn all about it. And it obviously wasn't really going to be about a model railway. It was actually going to be about the men and their lives and midlife crises and um, relationships. And But unfortunately, I couldn't find anyone who was willing to do this because it was going to be quite a forensic thing. It was going to be one day for one day, one day each week for a year and I was going to interview them and then it was going to be a wonderful book. I couldn't find anyone who would be my um, guinea pig for this and then I thought actually it's going to require an amazing feat of skill to try and pull this together into a cohesive book. And then I talked to a couple of people and they said it's too obscure. So then I thought, OK, but I am actually interested in miniature things in general. I'm interested in not just model railways and model villages, but the idea of a miniature is something that we sort of neglect, but we use all the time. So be it in artistic ways, if you're a set designer, you would build a model of the, of the 
you know, stage you're about to build, or if you were an artist, you would obviously often work in maquette form first, or if you were a Victorian entrepreneur, you would be interested in the flea circus, as I was. And so I kind of thought, well, interesting about miniature objects is they tend to make us look far more closely at things that we think we know and hence the book came about. But like an architect's model is a vital step on the on the path to building a building. You know, a scale model of the Taj Mahal made out of matchsticks yeah. is a very different ballgame. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it encompasses, I mean, the, the book encompasses all those, you know, all those kind of ideas. Uh, I mean, to take the kind of hobbyist angle, you know, to take the, for instance, in, in the book, I talked to someone who spent pretty much 70 years of their life building 440 warships out of matchsticks. Um, and any spare time he had now, he's retired and he would do do this. And he says this has created for him not only a history of world warships, um, and the biggest single collection. You won't be surprised to learn anywhere in the world. And the museum quality stuff, this is, every model is exacting and beautiful and everything else, and he takes them around to shows. He's done that, but he's, what he's also done is created this hobby where he's created pretty much an ideal world for himself, an ideal hobby. He um, had a colleague who died who said, well, you will find when you do this that not only does it take up all your time, but the outside world becomes increasingly unattractive. In other words, you create this sort of attic and shed mentality for yourself and you uh, it's a form I'd like to I'd say it in a way as a sort of form of mindfulness uh, in a way before the term came about you know any hobby where you kind of concentrate a lot and uh, you um, forget your real world problems because you're so concerned with getting the exact minutiae right of whatever you're building so and obviously that goes for model uh, villages and we can talk a bit about you know those extreme things which which are now sort of still huge but they've turned into model worlds so as you say there's a big gap between that and then the kind of the worker who who designs it you know as an architect as you said uh, or a set designer or or an, an artist but the same principles apply I think um, which is the value to the viewer is that you understand more uh, by making it you know small so if you were to do a model warship you will look at the helicopter or, or the, the plane or whatever on the deck probably far more closely than you ever would if, if one just zoomed by or if you were on a deck and you would think this is a huge you know fantastic fighter plane what a wonderful thing but you wouldn't examine it I don't think in the same degree and the idea of an architect model well it's sort of twofold I suppose an architect's model one is to show your client what you're going to build and they can look around it. it's the only opportunity of course where you have a looking down in a sort of godlike way on a model because you know if you're building a new church or even a new house you can only see it from the front door or the back or the sides when it's fully built in real size obviously this way you can see the whole thing and see how it relates to everything else around it as an architect building a model you can also probably conceal certain things as well you can show certain aspects to be more significant than perhaps they are or they end up so it's a kind of tool, but it's, um, it serves an immense purpose in a way. In terms of the book, what counts as a miniature and what is, what's in and what's out? Mm. I, will, I will read a tiny bit that 
that sort of defines my definition of it. So I say, of all the miniature things we'll encounter in the following pages, not all of them will be small. So the impression is, oh, it's got to be tiny. But of course, the miniature railway in Hamburg, which uh, prides itself on being the biggest in the world, is, is like 10 miles long, if you, if you include all the track, which is sort of extraordinary. So not small. The Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, with its fully workable gondola rides for the romantically obtuse sleeps 4,000. And obviously the thing about Vegas is there was a trend to create the world in hotel size, mm-hmm. you know. So it would be New York, New York, and the Venetian, and then Paris. Um, and Paris would have been you know, a half-size Eiffel Tower and stuff. And then I say, but everything in the book will be miniature in scale compared to the thing it's a miniature of. And then I say, well... Things may also perform a miniature duty, so they may explain a concept or solve a puzzle or jog a memory. A souvenir of a building on a key ring, although not very interesting, fits the bill, as does a miniature bottle of gin. A Volkswagen Beetle does not, because it was originally built small, it wasn't smaller than anything else. And nor does an ever-so-small thimble, no matter how keen are those who collect them. Mini bars and lapdogs are borderline, as is the art of bonsai cultivation. A toy poodle made of plastic in a classroom tableau made by five-year-olds is of no interest to anyone. So I want to start off with, as you do in the book, with the Eiffel Tower. And of course, the discussion of the Eiffel Tower gets us on to you know, the, the beginning of the idea of the, of the souvenir and like the small, obviously, scale versions yeah. of the Eiffel Tower. But the Eiffel Tower itself conversely, does a similar thing to what we're talking about, miniatures, the relationship that miniatures have to their larger objects, in that suddenly, you know, people are able to, you know, the Eiffel Tower goes up, people who have obviously never been in an aeroplane at this time are able to go up the Eiffel Tower and suddenly see Paris, see the world in a completely new way. Exactly. Why begin the book with the Eiffel Tower, which at the time when it opened, 1889, was the biggest building in the world and um, now dwarfed by, you know, 100, of course. But then it was extraordinary. As you say, you needed great courage to go up, you know, even to the first platform. No one had done this before the tallest, the tallest building in Paris or the, the view, uh, the highest view was the Notre Dame Cathedral. And then this thing suddenly goes up hundreds of feet and you go up and as you, you say, Neil, that you see miniature Paris laid out in front of you for the first time. No one had ever seen this. So you can see the Houseman Boulevards. Um, you can see your house maybe in relation to the nearest hospital, how far it is on foot, you've got an idea, but how far it is, you know, when you're looking at it, a bird, flying vertically, it's a, it's a very different thing. And uh, you get a sense of two things. I think you get a sense of enormous omnipotence. You are taller than anything on the ground. You are a giant seeing the whole of your city for the first time. But you also get a feeling of, well, actually, you know, it's a big modernist building and it's the future and, and how small we are, really, up in the air in relation to the world uh, around us and then as you say you come down and for the first time pretty much you can buy mass-produced factory souvenirs of the Eiffel Tower so you can get them as little metal um, objects uh, to put on your mantelpiece or you can you can get the image you know in any form of clothing or, or you know scarf or handkerchief or that kind of stuff um, you could get it as, as, a, as a, a ring you know a silver ring in the Eiffel Tower shape so that already establishes the idea of ownership and capturing something and the idea of saying I was there and then obviously that in time will be joined by 
other things on the mantelpiece. And of course, you know, those souvenirs are so ubiquitous in our world now. And obviously, you know, photography, you know, going to visit a place, taking a photograph Mm. of it. I I think it's difficult to think from a remove that, you know, that tiny little cast iron model of the Eiffel Tower in no way replicates in reality the experience of visiting the thing. Yeah. And yet it's sort of... The more accurate it is, the more you value it. You know, had it been just a little lump of metal without the sort of an attempt to recreate the filigree element of the metal on the uh, on the on the tower itself, i.e., all the crisscrossings and all the triangles and the balconies and the platforms, then it wouldn't have been any good. The key to a, a miniature that we are, that we actually treasure and we're interested in is not something that's just more, but something that's detailed. That's the other point that. The hey-wow factor that we have when we're looking at a model village is about the accuracy. It's not the fact that it's small, because anything can be small. You know, I could do the worst model model of of anything of my house out of a bit of um, cardboard, and no one would say hey-wow. They would say that goes in the bin. But if you go to, you know, a model village, what what you're amazed at is the detail, the amount of care someone has taken to get everything exactly right. Well, I wanted to move us on to model villages, basically recreating on the ground that feeling of looking at Paris from the, you know, the, the top of the Eiffel Tower. And um, I mean, I've, I've visited, you know, like God's Hill and, you know, yeah. like various model villages when I was a child. I went after, you know, reading that chapter, I, I went online to try and look at how many of these were still in business around the country. And, you know, there's a there's a, a fair few handful. Yeah. You talk particularly about Beck and Scott. Yeah. Again, just look, what's the appeal of the, of these places? The, the the appeal is infinite and timeless. It's an extraordinary thing. So, I mean, Guards Hill is is, um, is is renowned for having a model village with inside its mm-hmm. model village, with inside its model village, which is sort of a wonderful kind of concept. Beck and Scott is coming up to its ninetieth anniversary um, next year. Uh, the the dates are a little bit hazy, but that's the one they're claiming. So it opened in 1929, and it began, we think, no one knows exactly, as a model railway inside a house, and the, uh, the wife of the, of the guy, uh, Reverend Callingham, who built it, got rather frustrated that it was taking up the whole house, as these things tend to do, and said, it's either me or the railway. And so the railway went outside to the garden, and then it expanded, and then obviously a model railway itself isn't very interesting. What you need is an interesting landscape. And expanded from that. It's extraordinary. Now it's, well, for a while, it's been the size of a football pitch. But it's constantly expanding. So they recently um, opened a whole new little area, which has, uh, it's all based on the 1930s in a very loose kind of way. So they had a sort of hangar lane type tube that opened there. And they had a, a town hall that was sort of 1930-ish, but actually more, more modelled on France. They're very, they don't, you know, I, I said about the exactitude of it. What they want is the exact dimensions to fit in just about with everything else that's, that's there. What they don't mind so much is it doesn't have to be exactly 1930s. But walking around there, uh, no less entertaining now as an adult as it was for me as a kid. And I took my kids there and then when I was doing the book, I took some kids of a neighbour, because my kids are grown up now, and their joy, really, because it's such an unusual thing. You know, they have, like everyone else, you know, iPads and um, everything else. 
And although they're quite, you know, they, they do uh, quite a lot of uh, sort of arts-related work and uh, craft-related work with their hands as well, these kids, but it's nothing like they've ever seen. But it made me think that actually our interest in miniature stuff really begins as kids, and some, some of us grow out of it and some of us don't. So, you know, the world is a, is a, is a doomy, confusing place um, as an adult and as a kid, but as a kid you have no control over anything really in your life i mean your you know your your parents pretty much rule the 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 roost from what your bedroom looks like to when you go to bed to what meals you eat you know this is when you're young um school pretty much the same so if you're a 6 year old the idea of having a lego set or um a model train or um, you know, I, I, not quite as popular as I used to be, an action man when I was growing up, or a Barbie doll, which are still obviously huge. Those kind of things, you are in control. And it's maybe the only time that you're in control. And so much of the miniature world is about that. It's about setting the world to rights. And you can do that as a kid, and, and, and obviously you can do that as an adult. So the idea of a model village at Beck and Scott is you're sort of creating an ideal world. That's not to say... Everything in it is perfect because even in, in sort of Bear and Scott in the village, there's a bit of crime going on. There's a there's a kind of old copper chasing a, a thief with a swag bag, a sort of across a lawn. There is, the terrible um, puns. Terrible puns. I mean, so the greengrocer is called Chris P. Lettuce, and the butcher is called the two two butchers are called Sam and Ella, and so you've got to say that fast. And anyway, so that goes on, and um, and 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 the adults, yeah, point out that the puns to the kids who were kind of way ahead of the game, obviously. Um, and then there's, uh, there's there's some general kind of weirdness um, going on uh, there as well. So, you know, there were arguments, there's uh, arguments in outside areas, and you, can, you can't hear anyone shouting, you can imagine people shout, shouting. There is graffiti, you know, so it's not the perfect place, but it's a sort of perfect recreation of uh, everything where there is a fire but the fire engine is on hand there is a, a robber as I said but the policeman's there so you know it's, it's still pretty ordered and there's limited chaos A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Simon Garfield and we're talking about his book In Miniature, How Small Things Illuminate the World. And Simon, moving us on from model villages to the, the already mentioned extension of that, the model railway. Mm. Um, obviously you, you talk about model railways in the book, despite the book, the, the entire book not being about <laughs> um, men that run model railways. Um, I think you've already mentioned the Hamburg miniature wonderland which just sounds yeah. like i mean the most amazing place it's amazing and, and and unnerving really as well um so unlike uh beck and scott which has a you know a kind of deep-rooted history the, and and beck and scott is quite an organic place this isn't an organic place this is two german guys uh in hamburg deciding 10 or so years ago maybe 15 years ago now i think to build the biggest model railway in the world from scratch so classic thing, they never really had the railway that they wanted when they were kids. They got some money because they ran a nightclub, these brothers. And they said uh, they passed a, a model railway shop in Zurich, I think. One of them was on holiday and called the other one up and said, I've had an idea. And then the idea becomes a reality. And they open up and the model railway just runs through their little model Germany and then they say, that's not enough, we're going to build, we're going to build. And then they go to Model America and uh, their car, uh, Model Italy, which is sort of crazy. The Model Italy, I think, is the one is the most sort of uh, impressive and expansive one. So they've got, a, um, they've got a kind of erupting Vesuvius that erupts every 20 minutes. And you want to warn, as a, as a visitor, you want to warn the people of Pompeii to run for their lives but they never do and they get covered and then this somehow through a beautiful sort of electronic way the lava gets swept away underneath them and they've also got a, a, within this they've got a, an airport and they've got cars going and it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to look at and they're about to build um, Model Britain which will inevitably have what the Model Britain always has all over the world which is Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament and other things as well. Um, so, you know, we're going Brexit, but they're including us in, you know, next to, next to Germany and Italy, and they want us in, which is great. Um, but it's a slightly strange place because you kind of think, well, what is this really about, you know? And what it's about is building something where they're earning quite a lot of money. A lot of people come um, to it, I say in the book. You know, it's it's um, it's huge tourist attraction in Hamburg and uh, one of the biggest in Germany. And um, people just can't believe the intricacy uh, of the whole thing and how beautifully it all it all runs. And occasionally, because they want to interrupt the, the beauty of it, they, they will stage a rail crash or... Um, something like that to show that this happens in real life too. And it's in a coffee warehouse on the docks in um, Hamburg. I found it incredibly impressive in one on one level. 
And I also thought, yeah, you can do this if you've got enough great model makers and enough money behind it and enough investment. But what I really like, and I think the, the real joy I had in the book, was talking to the slightly more eccentric guys, like the guy who built you know, the 440 matchstick warships. And I love looking at things like the Flea Circus. And I love talking to the guy who designed those tiny, tiny perforated miniature tabs of acid, each of which had, um, you know, a little artistic logo or emblem on them. Um, so that's the, the stuff I really enjoyed. The stuff that was kind of, you know, more obsessive, really, I think. Well, when I first read the book, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the perhaps surprising fact that people like Rod Stewart and, mm. and Neil Young are model railway enthusiasts. Um since then, I mean, I presume Neil Young has multiple houses, to be fair. But um, the news that his, his, his house in California went with the, uh, this huge, yeah. huge fire. And I said to my wife, oh, I wonder if his railway is in that house. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's, I'm, I'm sure it was, really. And, uh, yeah, no, I love that. I mean, the fact that kind of Rod Stewart relaxes, that, that's the way he relaxes. You know, that, that idea of he goes on tour. If he goes on tour for more than one or two days like if he does a week in Las Vegas Rod takes his railway with him along with various railway building enthusiasts and assistants and builds it in his hotel suite and he finds that you know that's that's the way he he can he can come down after a after a gig at at sort of um, 11 at night that by running railway around a track and there's this wonderful interview that I quote that he did with Piers Morgan, that Piers Morgan goes to um, Rod's house and says, um, you know, I hear you've got a, a railway um, upstairs. Can I see it? And Rod says no, because he knows that Piers Morgan will just not understand it and take the piss out of it. And that's the last thing uh, he wanted. And also, I was very keen never to do that in the book. You know, I was very keen to... There are clearly some sort of crazy people who devote their whole lives to building very, very, very tiny things. And um, some of them get really tiny. And um, I kind of thought, these are, uh, uh, you know, in another world, I might have been one of those kind of guys. And I kind of think, and not all men either, and I kind of think, well, I like the idea of the patience and the dedication. And the last thing I wanted to do was take the piss. But anyway, Rod... Feared, I'm sure that, that Piers Morgan was going to take the piss, and he sort of even in the interview he he, he does in, you know he, um, he I should actually like quote a little bit where um, let me find this uh, bit here where Rod says to the producer uh, or maybe the di director of um, this um, little TV interview they're doing, you know he turns to them at one stage and says, you know are people still watching this like watching me talking about my model. Railway, uh, and then um, Piers Morgan um, says um, to him, "Do you like being the driver or uh, the the kind of master?" Which which makes makes it sound like some sort of coded sexual behaviour. And then Rod Stewart says, "Now, nah, don't take the piss. I don't wear a little hat. It's a lovely hobby. It's like reading a book or painting a picture. It's three dimensional. It's wonderful." And I say, you know, and if you don't get that, then the sort of the loser is you, in a way. There's a famous. A film, originally a French film, um, which which is called uh, Le Dina du, du Con, which was Hollywoodized into uh, Dina for Schmucks, which I'm sure you know, where uh, Steve Carell uh, is invited classically to this dinner where these very elitist hedge funders or the wealthy 
guys who think they're the bee's knees think, wouldn't it be brilliant to invite a guy who's a bit of an idiot for dinner so we can take the piss out of him? And both in the French version and in the uh, American version, um, the, the guy they invite uh, is a uh, modeler, and he, he builds the Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. And I say, you know, this guy, it's like, it's like sort of Shakespearean fool who knows more than uh, his masters in a way, really. This is the guy who comes out on top. And I say, you know, he, the modeler, is happier in his world than the people who invite them uh, are in theirs. Well, just to finish off then, Simon, you, you have mentioned that a lot of the people that do this are men, and I imagine people that are listening probably would, would suspect that too. So let, let's finish off talking about a woman yeah. um, modeler. And, in fact, there's, there's a whole section of the book about domestic modelling. Queen yeah. Mary's incredible... Um, you know, a huge working dollhouse that um, that you can see at Windsor Castle and the Thorn Miniatures at the Chicago Art Institute. But I want to talk about Frances Glessner Lee and um, her nutshell studies. Yeah. What are they? An amazing uh, person. So in the 1920s and 1930s, Frances Glessner Lee lived in Chicago. She was a traditional builder of um, little model houses and little model tableaus and um, would build tiny little chests of drawers to go in houses. And and this was, you know, um, a fun thing and um, still popular now. And miniature, you know, modelling, as we said, not only, absolutely not uh, an exclusive kind of male thing. And she um, became friendly with uh, someone in in the local police force who was quite high up, and he was aware that when his detectives went to see a crime scene for the first time, they didn't really look carefully enough at it. And what they did was they looked at the body, they may have moved evidence, which now classically we know we never do, and they kind of thought, OK, we can solve this, or, you know, this is going to be easy. What they found was that actually what you really needed is at the spot, as soon as you get called in, the clues are often all there, you know. You, can, you don't have to do all the interviews. But what you need to do is look more closely. So what he... What he encouraged Francis Glessner Lee to do was to build these tableaus, which I suppose were the size of a shoebox or a very small TV set or something like that, which depicted a corpse always and then various other elements in it. Now, these would be based either on a true-life crime or an imaginary crime and often a combination of the two. And the idea was to encourage people to look at the whole scene. You begin with often the body in the middle. The body uh, might be hanging um, from a rope in a barn or it might be in a bathtub and then water would still be dripping like silver foil from the tap and everything in there would be incredibly exact. So there would be a a medicine bottle that was a tiny, tiny version of a real-life medicine bottle. So it was instantly recognisable as a real place. You believed it. And the idea was that you would just look and there would be enough clues there, not necessarily to solve the crime, but to understand the circumstance far more. Extraordinary thing is, these things are still used as uh, ways of examining uh, and ways of educating and coaching new detectives in looking at things. Um, so, you know, 70, 80 year, years on, these are still incredibly valuable things. And I say in the book, you know, the, the closer you look, the more you see, the closer you look. So it's, it's this kind of wonderful spiral. Um, but can I just say, Neil, the, the, you know, we've talked a lot, obviously, about models, and this does actually have a, a use in real life. 
And I was very keen when I talked to um, you know architects and when I looked at theatre set designers to look at um, you know real world use, I suppose. And the most important tale that I came across, and I had a lot of fun doing the book, but the most important one was a very serious one, which was about, well, late 18th century, the slave trade was roaring, really. Um, Britain was getting wealthy on the back of sugar and cotton plantations, and the triangular slave trade meant that slaves would um, come in from Africa, uh, they would land in Liverpool and they would be shipped out to, let's say, Jamaica. And people were getting very, very wealthy uh, on this trade. We were obviously treating uh, people in a terrible way. And slaves were shackled in these kind of coffin ships, they were called. And they were crammed in, you know, three or four hundred to uh, a boat below decks. And um, they would often die on the voyage or, uh, you know, arrive totally emaciated. And they were obviously, you know, utterly subservient to their masters and, and whipped on these things. They only knew about this, thought this was a terrible thing and the slave trade must end. So people like William Wilberforce in Parliament would get up and make speeches. Had very little effect for a long time because there was so much money at stake. What happened was a banker and a royal academician called William Alford went up to Liverpool drew a poster of what he imagined, because he went to a ship, didn't see the slaves, that the slave um, galleys and the slave ships to actually look like, did a poster, all these black men, typically shackled together in terrible conditions. This had some impact. The poster was duplicated, printed in new, early newspapers. But only when this was made into a miniature moral model, someone made, unknown person made a wooden model and uh, cut out the drawings of these slaves and put them throughout the boat, crammed them in. And when this went round Parliament in people's hands, only then could they really understand what conditions were, were like. Now, this didn't end the slave trade overnight, but it gave people a visual insight that they'd never had before. And the reason I liked that was because it showed the value of a, mo of a model like nothing else. I've been talking to Simon Garfield. We've been talking about his book, In Miniature, How Small Things Illuminate the World, which is out now from Canongate. Simon, thank you so much for coming in and telling I me about really it. I really loved coming in. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.